0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we discuss a recent trial published in the February 2019 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, entitled, Bag Mask Ventilation During Tracheal Intubation, of critically ill adults. Um, so, before we get started, uh, could you please introduce yourself?
1: My name is Matt Sumler, and I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt. And my research uh, uses pragmatic trials to evaluate the effects of common ICU interventions on patient outcomes.
0: Great, and uh, you. Your group recently published a trial called the PREVENT trial. I was wondering if you could maybe give us a bit of background about what this trial involved and why it was conducted.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The PREVENT trial, which was led by Jonathan Casey at Vanderbilt and conducted by the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group, was a multi-center randomized trial comparing bag mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy with no ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy during tracheal innovation of critically ill adults, The rationale for this trial was that millions of critically ill adults undergo tracheal intubation in the intensive care unit each year. And unlike intubation in the operating room, where complications are uncommon, almost half of intubations in the ICU result in some sort of complication. And in 20 to 25% of those cases, that's severe hypoxemia, which can precipitate cardiac arrest and death. And so how to prevent severe hypoxemia during intubation in the intensive care unit is a priority for airway management research, and for for clinicians caring for critically ill adults, unfortunately, there are not a lot of therapies with evidence that suggest they prevent hypoxemia during tracheal intubation in the ICU. And one of the potential therapies that has been around forever and has been debated for more than 50 years is the provision of bag-mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy, Um, and there are some experts and some guidelines that say every patient being intubated in the ICU should receive bag mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy, even if they're not hypoxemic. Other guidelines say this should be avoided uh, unless the patient becomes hypoxemic because of the idea that it might increase the risks of aspiration. But this had never been studied in uh, outside of the operating room. And so uh, the point of the PREVENT trial was to address this question and answer the hypothesis that bag valve mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy would result in higher oxygen saturation, less severe hypoxemia, than no ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults.
0: Okay, so um, from my understanding, so why do you think uh, patients develop hypoxemia during intubation, uh, specifically during rapid sequence intubation, and how would bag valve uh, bag mask ventilation uh, prevent this from occurring?
1: So there are several physiologic factors that probably contribute to the high risk of hypoxemia during endotracheal intubation in the intensive care unit. One is that these patients are often being intubated because they're already sick, and often they're already hypoxemic. So unlike a fasting patient showing up to the operating room with normal lung function before an elective surgery, patients in the ICU often have problems with VQ mismatch from pneumonia, pulmonary edema, developing ARDS. They often have diminished functional residual capacity, which is that store of oxygen that you get to spend down before you become hypoxemic. They often have sepsis or other illnesses that increase oxygen consumption. And so there's a host of physiologic reasons that make hypoxemia the most common complication during tracheal intubation in the intensive care unit. And people have been looking for a long time for interventions that might affect those and prevent hypoxemia in the intensive care unit, but it's been hard to come by. These are sick patients, and uh, the, the risk is high. The reason bag valve mask ventilation might help for that is that uh, that period between induction and laryngoscopy, when uh, the, the sedative ma- medications are kicking in, and the patient's either hypopneic or apneic from the neuromuscular blocker. That's a very high-risk period in which the provision of oxygen, reliable provision of oxygen through the bag-valve-mask device, and the maintenance of positive pressure and ventilation um, may be more effective than any other approach to um, you know making sure the P big A O2 is maintained and that. To the degree that it's possible, you keep uh, PaO2, P little AO2 values high, and so rather than the, the theory goes that rather than filling with pre-oxygenation in the tank and then not providing further oxygen during the pr- procedure or not reliably providing it, this is a fairly reliable way to ensure that oxygen is being delivered, carbon dioxide is being removed up till the moment that laryngoscopy starts.
0: So the obvious question would be, as I think you alluded to a few minutes ago, um, why not just uh, pre-oxygenate everyone 100% uh, for like maybe five or ten minutes beforehand, and then uh, perform the intubation without having to do bag uh, mask ventilation?
1: Yeah, I think that's an important question, right? So these are two totally separate interventions, right? Pre-oxygenation refers to the period prior to induction medications and is probably vitally important for preventing. Uh, desaturation. The period we're talking about in this trial is between when induction drugs are pushed and laryngoscopy. So I think the answer is both, right? So I think optimal preoxygenation is should be done, and the question of what you should then do after that, I think, is is what this quite, study tries to get at. What optimal preoxygenation is in the intensive care unit, I think, is still an important question. There is. Uh, a trial by Bilard et al. in the Blue Journal in uh, the early 2000s that suggests non-invasive ventilation might be the optimal approach for patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, but there are important ongoing trials looking at OptiFlow or other devices. But we completely agree that optimal pre-oxygenation is necessary but not sufficient, right? So 20% of patients or so are desaturating despite pre-oxygenation. So the question is, can we do more during that second interval from
0: induction to laryngoscopy? Gotcha. That's a great overview. So what were the specific aims of the PREVENT trial? And what unique features of your trial uh, enable these aims to be achieved?
1: Yeah, so the primary aim of the trial was to evaluate the effect of bag mask ventilation versus no ventilation on lowest oxygen saturation during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults. And the secondary aim was tied into that. It was to evaluate the effect of bag mask ventilation on the incidence of severe hypoxemia, defined as an oxygen saturation less than 80%. And then the third aim, which is a little bit more general, was to accomplish those two aims Uh, in the context of a real-world setting that as a pragmatic trial, the idea was to understand the effect of bag valve mask ventilation versus no ventilation in the setting that it would be used, not in a highly idealized setting. So these are not a small number of patients intubated in the controlled conditions of the operating room. This is a moderate number of patients at a number of different centers intubated by a lot of different operators for a lot of different conditions and is intended to emphasize generalizability, and so I think that's uh, one of the things, that pragmatic trial design um, in which the intervention is delivered by clinical personnel uh, with a broad patient population with very few exclusion criteria at multiple different centers uh, were, were kind of things that helped us accomplish that aim, that final aim. The last thing I'll say is that in this airway management research in particular, um, use of an independent observer to collect the physiologic data is pretty important because of the limitations of self reported data. And so that that is something the Prevent trial used to, despite being a pragmatic trial and focusing on generalizability, retain some elements of an efficacy trial to make sure the quality of the data was high.
0: Gotcha. And then, specifically with regards to the intervention and control arms, maybe you can describe what. Components uh, formed the intervention, and what the control arm was allowed to receive.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So p- for patients randomized to the bag valve or the bag mask ventilation arm, um, the treating clinicians provided bag mask ventilation from induction to laryngoscopy. And there was structured education for treating clinicians regarding best practices in bag mask ventilation, specifically asking that they provide oxygen flow rates of at least 15 liters a minute, use a peep valve set to 5 to 10 centimeters of water, use an oropharyngeal airway, and then a two-handed mask seal performed by the intubating clinician with a head tilt chin lift, so a different person holding the mask, then squeezing the bag. And then finally, ventilation at about 10 breaths per minute, using the smallest tidal volume required to generate visible chest rise, so trying to limit the size of the tidal volumes. And so that was the intervention group, the bag mask ventilation group. And in the control group, it was uh, essentially the opposite, so bag valve mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy was not permitted except following a failed laryngoscopy attempt as treatment for hypoxemia, so if sat less than 90, or under special circumstances if felt by the treating clinicians to be necessary for the safe care of that patient. to try and generate, evaluate a strategy of routinely starting bag mask ventilation at the time the induction drugs are being pushed versus reserving bag valve mask ventilation for uh, rescue or for the development of hypoxemia.
0: Okay. And so could the control arm receive, for example, high flow at 100% 40 liters per minute? Was that routine or was it just as per clinician indicated?
1: Yes. The provision of oxygenation without ventilation was allowed in the control arm and 77% of patients, I think, received some form of oxygenation between induction and laryngoscopy, but not ventilation. So high flow nasal cannula, a non-rebreather mask, those things were allowed in the control arm. Those were not regulated.
0: Gotcha. So let's get that to your main study findings um, as well as your exploratory outcomes. Um, maybe you could uh, tell them what they were and how you interpret them. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So there were 401 patients enrolled in the trial, 199 in the bag mask ventilation group, 201 in the no-ventilation group. And nearly all of the patients in the bag-mask group received bag-mask ventilation starting right as induction drugs were pushed. And only about 2%, 2.5% of patients in the no-ventilation group received bag-valve-mask ventilation starting at induction. So good separation between groups and the therapy delivered. And the primary outcome... Median lowest oxygen saturation during the procedure was 96% in the bag mask ventilation group and 93% in the no ventilation group, so a p value of 0.01, so a mean difference between groups of about 3.9%. And that translated into an incidence of severe hypoxemia, so less than 80%, of 10% in the bag mask ventilation group versus 22% in the no ventilation group, so a relative risk of. 0.48 less, so basically cutting in half the risk of severe hypoxemia through the use of bag mask ventilation. I think an important secondary outcome, which was obviously a focus for think- when thinking about the design of the trial, was the incidence of operator-reported aspiration, which was in the bag mask ventilation group, and 4.0% in the no ventilation group. So no suggestion that bag mask ventilation increased the risk of aspiration, at least as reported by the operator. Then we also collected some objective measures of physiologic changes you might expect after aspiration. So there's no difference in the next 24 hours in SpO2, FiO2, or PEEP on the ventilator. In The chest X-rays for the next 48 hours, which were reviewed by two blinded reviewers centrally, there was no difference in new uh, opacity on chest X-ray. So our interpretation of this was that bag mask ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy increased oxygen saturation and prevented severe hypoxemia during tracheal intubation without appearing to increase the risk of aspiration.
0: Great. And how do you think these study findings might alter our clinical practice? Do you think, based on these findings, that we should now be using uh, bag valve mask uh, ventilation on all patients after receiving induction, or would you uh, uh, select a specific group of patients? So
1: I uh, worked clinically in the intensive care unit and had used bag mask ventilation pretty intermittently. I know there are some folks, often anesthesiologists, who previously had used it very routinely and some who often emergency medicine physicians who uh, moved or used it very infrequently. And at least in our critical career practice, I was very much in the middle. This certainly pushes me towards using it more frequently that the benefit seems pretty The benefit in terms of preventing hypoxemia seems pretty significant to me, uh, reducing basically this from one in four patients experiencing hypoxemia to one in ten patients cutting that risk in half. I think the thing that everybody worried about, the only reason you're not doing this, is the idea that it might increase aspiration, and that comes from, there's no data to suggest that it does. The studies of that are largely physiologic studies of healthy volunteers where they bag them and then listen for gurgling in the stomach. So it's not like there's trials that suggest that that's a risk. And at least in this study, this wasn't powered to look at that, but it's numerically not any higher. It's actually lower in the bag mass group. So I think my concern about aspiration after this study is lower. The benefits, I think, are pretty clear. So I've I've already incorporated this into my practice. This wasn't something I was doing routinely. This now is something I think. I'm certainly going to be doing routinely because there's not any other interventions to prevent severe hypoxemia that uh, seem to have this effect or consistency providing ventilation during the preoxygenation period, so non invasive ventilation during preoxygenation may be one. And this bag valve mask ventilation or positive pressure ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy, that second period, may be the other. So I, I definitely have incorporated this into my practice.
0: Yeah, and I think this is really important work, especially since it answers a question. And that, uh, I mean, we do a lot of things in critical care um, with very little evidence base, so to add that evidence base is so important. There will always be those who um, critique trials, and uh, some may raise issues that um, what components of the bag valve mask ventilation actually improved the oxygenation? Um, was it the PEEP settings of 5 to 10? Was it the fact that the OPA way was used? Or was it the fact that the patients received an oxygen flow of 15 liters per minute, which technically you could also give to all patients who received a high flow? So how does one tease out which components of the bag valve mass ventilation actually improve? Um, Or do you think that there should be trials done to see which of those components actually uh, improve the outcomes?
1: No, I think that's a great question. Bag valve mask ventilation, in some ways, is a bundle, right? That it's uh, all of those things that we described about in the intervention. I I do, you know, the there's the big fork in the road: is do you just provide oxygen, or do you provide oxygen and ventilation? There's not been a trial, to my knowledge, of just providing oxygen during tracheal intubation that clearly improves lowest oxygen saturation. So that was where I started with this work in our group. Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group started focusing on the idea of providing oxygenation during the apneic period. And our trial didn't show a benefit to just providing oxygen. The uh, you know preoxy flow trial didn't show a benefit, a trial by Simon, Simon et al, and respiratory care didn't show benefit. The ENDAO trial by Caputo et al didn't show benefit. Um, so I think the idea and that's not necessarily that there's a nail in the coffin there, but the idea that just providing a lot of oxygen at a time when the patient's not breathing is going to prevent severe hypoxemia, I worry about that idea. The two interventions that seem to have shown benefit in terms of lowest oxygen saturation are non-invasive ventilation for pre-oxygenation in two trials by Bilard et al., um, and then to prevent trial suggesting positive pressure ventilation during induction and laryngoscopy. There are ongoing trials like the Floral 2 trial that's also working on the question of ventilation. But at least where the needle stands right now, ventilation seems to be an important component of this, that just providing oxygen by a high-flow nasal cannula by itself doesn't seem to have done the trick.
0: Yeah, and as you said, I mean, you've got the oxygen, but you actually move it down to the lungs, so that definitely makes sense. So uh, another uh, query that some reviewers may have is, um, uh, in terms of hard and soft endpoints, um, uh, uh, severe hypoxemia or or dropping in O2 sats would be considered by some as a soft endpoint, whereas death is obviously the hardest endpoint that we have. Um, What would your response to that be? Should I mean, obviously... Um, when you look at the outcomes, uh, death was pretty similar um, across the two arms. So the question is obviously could you ever power this kind of type of study towards death? Um, and if not, uh, how reliable um, are softer outcomes like uh, you know, hypoxemia?
1: I think that's a really important question. Um, hypoxemia is a surrogate outcome, right? It's not a patient centered, longer term outcome. And the question, A challenge for airway management research is that it's uncertain how well these outcomes that occur during the procedure relate to longer-term outcomes, that these are critically ill patients and a lot of the risk of death may not be attributable to what's happening during the intubation, right? And in, in fact, if there is a part of it that is due to what's happening during the intubation, it may be mediated through really severe rare events like extreme hypoxemia, cardiac arrest, things that are very hard to power a trial for. So I think that's a um, a, a limitation of this and all other airway management research using these surrogate outcomes is that their relationship to clinical outcomes is unknown. To the clinician intubating a patient, and probably to that patient, I think it's not unreasonable to say if you have the option between having severe hypoxemia and not having severe hypoxemia. In the absence of any other factors that might affect the decision, you probably would prefer to not have severe hypoxemia. But I I think we may see clinical trials um, in airway management targeting outcomes like cardiac arrest and death, especially when it has to do with induction drugs or other physiologic, Um, but those will have to be large very, very large trials. And I think they have to be targeting things where the attributable risk from those is a high proportion of the actual risk of death. And I'm not sure that that's true. for. uh, It it may be that the effects of hypoxemia on death only really matter in in rare severe cases. So I think the, the, the short story is that's a really important limitation of these trials. And I think it's, deb- it's definitely a reasonable argument to say this is probably not having a big effect on patient outcomes, and if it is, it's through these preventing really severe rare cases.
0: Gotcha. And I wanted to turn our attention um, to the uh, patient characteristics at baseline. Um, uh, in terms of indications for intubation, uh, I think the hypercarbic respiratory failure was more uh, prevalent in the no ventilation arm at like 27% versus 20%. Um, and then the no ventilation group actually had uh, more BiPAP uh, pre-intubation uh, compared to the um, bag mask ventilation group. And some may raise concerns that maybe um, giving them no ventilation uh, should not have been performed in those patients because obviously they were really on ventilation. How would you respond to such a query?
1: Yeah, so um, the, in the baseline characteristics, uh, there was not a, di- a difference as between uh, statistical difference in hypercarbic respiratory failure, but it was a numerically a little higher in the no ventilation group. And uh, what you're referring to is that for pre-oxygenation in the trial, the, the this was not regulated by a study protocol, that these are a wide group of patients, and there are some for whom non-invasive ventilation may have been what the providers thought was the right approach, uh, some high-flow nasal cannula, others just a face mask. Um, And so I think it's important to recall that the, the only key exclusion criteria, there were exclusions for pregnancy and incarceration, but the real key exclusion criteria was that patients for whom bag valve mask ventilation was required were contraindicated in the view of the treating clinicians. Those patients are excluded. So any patient for whom the treating clinician did not feel that, For instance, uh, removing if it's a patient who was on uh, very high settings on non-invasive ventilation and they didn't feel like it was safe to take that off and bag them, or uh, wanted to maintain the Optiflow, you know, patients who were not felt to be safe for enrollment in the study. That was the main exclusion, and there were those patients. And actually, the larger than exclusion for uh, severe acidosis or hypoxemia. Um, the, the, there was about, and we were very focused on this, about 7% of patients who were excluded because they were having active hemoptysis, active hematemesis, or active vomiting. And so I would say that's more than the group with hypercarbic respiratory failure. That's the group I would highlight for readers to say When you're intubating patients, these results probably apply to the majority of patients being intubated in the ICU, but they don't apply to some very high-risk patients for aspiration, or at least we don't know how they apply to that group. So think about that with caution. Those who are actively vomiting hematemesis or hemoptysis were deliberately excluded by providers because the thought was that bag mask ventilation might be unsafe.
0: Gotcha. And then uh, turning towards uh, the end of this podcast, um, th- th- this study uh, definitely advances the field in answering a question about whether we should perform bag mass ventilation uh, between induction and irongoscopy to prevent hypoxemia. Uh, what future studies would you want to see done, or, or what studies do you believe that uh, lead on from this study? I think we've alluded to some of them uh, in this podcast, but hopefully you just encapsulate for us.
1: Yeah, so I... <clears throat> As an avid reader in this field, I'm eager to see the results of the Floralee 2 trial, which compares pre-oxygenation with non-invasive ventilation to pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation with high flow nasal cannula. That gets at some of the questions of ventilation versus oxygenation alone. So I, I hope that we <clears throat> learn from that trial, which should be uh, available fairly soon. The protrake trial is another one in that same field, comparing pre-oxygenation with a face mask to pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation with high-flow nasal cannula. Again, getting that that question of whether the provision of oxygen, even high levels of oxygen during the apneic period, are effective in preventing hypoxemia. So those are the two in the preventing hypoxemia or the pre-oxygenation space that I'm looking out for. And then in the, the other big Complication or outcome is cardiovascular collapse. And the two trials that I'm eager to see results from in that are the Prepare trial, which compares an intravenous fluid bolus prior to induction to no fluid bolus with regard to severe hypotension, vasopressor receipt, cardiac arrest, and death during tracheal intubation of critically ill adults. and that, um, i eager to see that. And then there's a trial called the EVK trial, comparing etomidate and ketamine during tracheal intubation. Um, and this is one of the few trials with an endpoint of mortality in uh, tracheal intubation. And so despite being a single center trial, I think we're all eagerly awaiting the EBK results. And so on, on the horizon, those are probably the four of the trials that I'm most interested in. All of the trials that I'm interested in seeing here have physiologic outcomes right so I think that's the last thing I'll emphasize that as critical care physicians this is the big difference between innovating the operating room where it's mostly anatomic stuff and the ICU where it's mostly physiologic problems and that's our bread and butter so I think it's really nice to see the, the airway management trial shifting from anatomic questions like VLDL bougie towards these really physiologic with physiologic questions, which are the complications that we think affect our patients' outcomes more. So that's part of what's really excited me about the field recently.
0: Great. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate speaking to you, Matt. Uh, you've given us very uh, thoughtful answers, and uh, um, and your trial definitely advanced the field. Uh, thank you to the prevent investigators and the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. Um, I hope the readers uh, go out and read your paper. Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me.
0: A big thank you to Dr. Matt Semler from Vanderbilt and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.